The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Acts chapter 23. So, you know, navigating our identity in this world is, is uh, a challenge. As, as citizens of the kingdom of God, our first and our, our primary identity is in our allegiance to Jesus and the things that Jesus values. But we're not only citizens of the kingdom. We are also citizens of a country. And, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at the, the analytics for our website. You know, we have people that listen literally from all over the world to our podcasts. We have some from South America and from the DR. We have people in Europe and in Africa that tune in and, and they hear... Um, they hear the word being taught here at Heritage. Now what's interesting about that is that oftentimes we, we make the mistake of thinking about our citizenship in heaven and, and God's kingdom and then, and then secondarily our citizenship here on earth but we only think of our citizenship here on earth as though all believers come only from America and we forget that there are believers in every context. There are, there are those uh, who are here in the U.S., those in England and Africa and Russia and China and any other nation. Um, and, and they are all required in those different places to abide by different sets of laws and different ways of being ruled. And they're called upon God to honor the authority and to love their countrymen. Now, though their primary identity is in the kingdom of God, and their primary identity is in those nations in which they reside, they are still having to navigate the cultural issues of being citizens of the countries in which they live. And sometimes navigating this dual citizenship becomes really complex. There is a lot of nuance in trying to sort out those things. And there's nuance for us. I mean, perhaps you have felt in the last few weeks the the hot debate that has gone back and forth about the reopening of churches and, and the political divide and the left versus right and liberal versus conservative and you felt maybe the tension over those issues. Well, uh, it's interesting here as we, as we open up our passage today, we're going to find out that we're not alone in that experience. As we'll see today, Paul struggled with this as well. For Paul, who was an ethnic Israelite and yet lived under Roman rule, his hope was found in the king of kings. And yet this didn't prevent him from caring about his fellow citizens on the earth. So in our time today, um, the the passage that we're going to go through is really going to cause us to consider really four things. If you're taking notes, and I hope that you are, uh, you can write down these four sort of file folders that will be uh, kind of what we're talking through today. First of all, we're going to talk about Paul's heart for his country. Paul's heart for his country. Next, we're going to talk about Paul's honor for authority. Paul's honor for authority in verses 1 through 5. And then, Paul's handling of diversity. Paul's handling of diversity in verses 6 through 10. And lastly, in verse 11, Paul's hope in adversity. Paul's hope 
in adversity in verse 11. So, starting with Paul's heart for his country, we have the writings of Paul that really walk us through how he thought about this dual citizenship, what he thought about uh, both the kingdom of God, which he places obvious first value and priority upon above all other things. That is, is something that's prevalent all throughout the, the New Testament and the writings of Paul. And in his example that, that's displayed for us here in the book of Acts, which we're studying. But in the book of Romans, he, he gives particular attention to his care for his own countrymen. And those of the house of Israel, of his own nation. And so we, we see in that Paul's heart for his country. So keeping, you know, take your Bible ribbon, keep it right here in, in chapter 23. But then I want you to flip over to the next book, to the book of Romans, to chapter 9 of the book of Romans. And, and in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, in the first five verses, Paul makes some claims that are, um, that, that should be shocking to us because of his willingness to sacrifice. Now listen to his heart. He says, in verse 1 of chapter 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. So he calls, he calls Jesus to check his conscience, right? He's like, in Christ, right now, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. This is the absolute truth. You ready? Here's what he says. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that we all put our hope in. Here's what he's saying. He says, I love, I love my nation. I love Israel. I, mean, I, I, I love them so much. I am so much concerned about them that, that if I thought that me being cut off from Christ for all of eternity would cause them to be saved, I would, I would be willing to take that upon myself. I would be willing to be damned to hell for all of eternity if that would save my nation, my kingdom, my country where I come from. Now, first of all, I, I want you to just let that kind of soak in. Let that kind of like begin to ruminate in your heart and in your mind. Have you loved your country to that degree? When, when your, your kingdoms are properly prioritized, when you, when you think about our nation or you think about those that live in other nations, have you ever been so passionate about seeing the redemption of the gospel and the lives of the people around you that you find yourself praying to God, like in dialogue with God, God, if there was any way that I could exchange my life for the life of my country in this way, that I would do that. You know, there are people who, who do understand that sacrifice and we're commemorating them this very weekend. We, we understand that there are people who lay down their lives literally 
literally, for their own country. And what a tremendous and honorable sacrifice that is for us. And, and, and to this very moment right now, the fact that we're having the political debates that we're having and, and everything else is, is bought and paid for and given to us in the blood of people who died for something, who gave their lives for something that they saw as a worthy cause. That's an incredible thing. And, and Paul says, not only would I be willing to die in this life, but I would be willing to be damned eternally if I thought that it would save the people from my own nation. He goes on in the very next chapter, in, in, in chapter 10, he says, brothers, verse one, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness that is from God, he's talking about righteousness that comes by faith, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Listen, Paul's heart for his country is that they would be saved. Now it's interesting as you think that through, here, here's what's happening. Paul says, the hope for my country is not political advantage. The, the hope for my country is not the next law that will be passed or the next person who will be in power. The hope for my country is, is not the, the next rule that will be implemented. The hope for my country is that they would come under the rule of King Jesus, that they would find a new king, a new Christos, the one who is anointed, the Messiah, and that they would be a new kingdom, that they would find their first and primary identity, not in their nationality here, but in the kingdom of God, because once they do that, then, then that manifests itself and love for one another and witness to the world and all these different things. And so his heart for them was that, that his country would come under the rule of King Jesus, that they, would, that they would find peace under a new king, under a new citizenship, and under a new kingdom. Paul's desire was to see the kingdom of God overtake the earthly citizenship of his nation. Not that the nation would be done away with, but that Israel would find its true purpose in God's plan of redemption. And so as we, we go back to the book of Acts, in chapter 23, we're going to see that Paul is, is hoping to be able to share the hope of redemption and the hope of the gospel. And, uh, and, and he's going to walk through this among the political elite of his day. So Paul's heart for his country was, was to see them redeemed. And, and, and so in last week's study, we, we talked about how Paul had been arrested and, and how he, had been, he tried to defend himself. He tried to share his testimony. But as soon as he mentioned that God had sent him to the Gentiles, they, they launched a revolt. They tried to kill him. They were trying to rip him apart. He had to be carried on, on the tops of the shoulders of soldiers and whisked away. It was a violent, violent thing. They were literally trying to beat him to death. So one day passes, and he's been incarcerated for the night, been kept in the tank. And the next day, Claudius Lysias, who was the, the Roman tribune, 
uh, in verse 30 of the previous chapter, it says this, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, unbound Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So, Claudius Lysias brings Paul down into the council of the Sanhedrin. And verse 1 of chapter 23, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, when Paul addresses them as men and brethren, William Barclay, one of the, one of the commentaries that I read, says that uh, this address to the Sanhedrin was a bold one because it would be normal to address the Sanhedrin saying rulers of the people and elders of Israel, but instead he includes himself in that group and says, men and brethren, I'm one of you, right? Now at that, the Sanhedrin and particularly the high priest is incensed at the idea that Paul would relate himself to the council because they saw themselves as the political elite of the day. And verse 2 tells us, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And so from out of nowhere, Ananias, who's the high priest uh, in, in the meeting of the Sanhedrin, commands one of the people close by to strike Paul and somebody comes over and just lands a punch right on Paul's face. Now, this is something that in our day would be scandalous, but in those days, um, this is the way that theological debates were solved. (laughs) This is the way that things went down. It doesn't mean that there weren't laws against it. There were laws against it. We'll see that. But in that day and at that time, the political rivalry was solved through violence, it was solved through division, it was solved through debate, and it was solved through the use of power. And Ananias was no stranger to the use of that power. We're told by Josephus that, that Ananias was a quick-tempered man, that he was corrupt, that he used to pilfer, the offerings to the temple and utilize it to enrich himself and uh, that he was a wicked, wicked man. So Ananias, who is the high priest at that time, orders Paul to be struck and somebody lands a punch on Paul's face. Then Paul, verse three, I love this, fires at him and says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? (laughs) I love this. I love this because this is so human. And one of the things that I want you to see, Paul has an honor for authority. And as as this passage here unfolds, we'll see his honor for authority unfold. But I want you to see, first of all, Paul's humanity. He is wrestling with the way that authority is being used in his day, the way that these politicians, this council of 70 people uh, with the high priest being the 71st person, 
They met in, in the hall of hewn stone. It was a, a place inside of Herod's temple. There would be 35 people that sat on one side and 35 people that sat on the other, usually divided up by political parties. And then the high priest presided over that. Paul is now standing in the middle of that room, the, the, the hall of hewn stone. And, and he's on trial before the high priest, but he doesn't realize, maybe because of the informality of, uh, of the proceedings, that it was kind of a quick thing where everybody was gathered together and the high priest was not in his typical high priestly garb. He looked like, just like everybody else. Or maybe it was because Paul had been traveling for, for 20 years. But he doesn't realize that it's the high priest who's given this order. And when somebody lands a punch on Paul, he just comes right back up like a pit bull. I mean, he's just like, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> Man, I can relate to that. I, I, I can relate to When I feel attacked, man, I, I just come back initially my first gut reaction is to defend myself and especially if pain is involved if pain is involved even more so man i just everything in me just sort of like rises up to meet that conflict to meet that occasion so paul we see his humanity now no matter what his motive was for this the order that the high priest gave was illegal for the Jewish law said that he who strikes the cheek of one Israelite, Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. And he that strikes a man strikes the Holy One. That's taken from a commentary from Kent Hughes. So there was a law on the books at this time saying it's not okay to hit somebody in the face. When you hit somebody who's made in the image of God, you are, it's as if you are striking God himself. So... The high priest is clearly in the wrong. And in his humanity, Paul fires right back at the authority. He says, God will strike you, you whitewash wall. Now, interesting, that phrase, whitewash wall, it's a, it's a phrase that, um, that Jesus uses in reference to uh, the, the political leaders of his day, uh, the religious elite of his day. He calls them whitewashed tombs or sepulchers. And a, a whitewash was just like a white paint. And so anytime you wanted to cover up the imperfections of something, you would whitewash it, right? You try and make it look good on the outside, but really what he was saying to the religious elite of his day, what Jesus was saying is that on the outside you look good, but inside you're dead, right? But he's also, he's, he's really referencing not just Jesus, but he's referencing the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel in chapter 13 uh, in the book of Ezekiel. Where, where God says that the religious leaders of his days were lying and false prophets. So in the time of Ezekiel, the false prophets were, were prophesying comfort. They were saying everything's going to be okay and everything's all right. And, and God is saying, no, it's not. There's a judgment that is coming. And you need to face that reality. And then he says this. He says, you religious leaders are like people who build a wall of defense for the day of trouble. That's just a shabby wall. But you cover that up by whitewashing it, by, by painting it white and trying to make it look good. But when the storm comes, that wall will be broken apart and people will look at you and say, where's the paint now? We have no defense. You try to make it look like we had a defense by, by painting over it with nice words, but we have no defense. And so Paul is referencing that to say, listen, you guys look religious on the outside. You look like you're holy, but look at what you're doing. You're not even abiding by the laws 
that you claim to uphold. Now, as Paul begins to respond to that, clarity is brought to who it is that he's speaking to. Those who stood by, verse 4, said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul hears that he he just rebuked the high priest. and, And he recognizes, look, the scriptures tell me I'm not supposed to rebuke a person in authority that God has given authority in that way, that I'm, I'm not supposed to be in that position of, of proclaiming judgment against them. And he, he quotes, he references the book of Exodus in, in chapter 22, verse 28, when he says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So we see not only Paul's humanity, but I I want you to see also that we see Paul's humility. At the end of the day, when when, when Paul's trying to sort out this this thing, how the law is being misused and, and who's accountable for what, Paul recognizes, look, they're accountable for what they do before God and I am accountable for what I do before God. And his reasoning in that, notice what he uses. He uses scripture to reason through it. He he looks at the scriptures from the Old Testament. He says, okay, how should I respond to this? And he he comes up with this verse from memory. He's not opening up a Bible and flipping through things or, or, or going through a scroll. He knows it in his heart and in his mind. And the logic of scripture is the final say for Paul. Paul says, I'm I'm sorry. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, some people have interpreted that to be sarcastic. I I, I really don't think so. I think Paul uh, was probably uh, traveling and and didn't know the the changes in order. I think it had been many years since he had been around the leadership of those in Jerusalem and around the Sanhedrin. And we're also told historically that he he likely had uh, problems with his vision, that he had an eye condition and and had poor eyesight. And so I think what is happening here is Paul, the combination of all those things converge and and Paul realizes, oh, I just rebuked the the guy who has the most authority in this, this political setting here in Jerusalem. And so in humility, he surrenders himself to the word of God and says, you're responsible for you. I'm responsible for me. There's a great quote by Paul Tripp. It's one of my favorites. He says, you know, we are all just sinners responding sinfully to the sins against us. I think the reason that I love that, it's something that I quote regularly as I'm, I'm giving people pastoral care and we're walking through a conflict in marriage or, or issues that are of division that are happening. It's one that I, I, I quote again and again because it, it brings us back to center. We go, listen, yes, injustices occur. Hurts happen. Sins take place. And I'm not responsible for the sins of other people against me, but I am responsible for how I respond. And if I sin in response to the sins against me, I add to the problem, I don't fix it. It's a powerful principle. Paul surrenders himself to the word of God 
And he says, your responsibility is you, my responsibility is me. And he walks back his response to those authorities. We see here Paul's humility. In the end, Paul judges his actions by whether he is obedient to the words of Scripture. And I, I love Paul's heart in that. He's, he's completely surrendered to God's word. Now, so we see here, uh, we see how Paul is, is handling uh, this, this conflict, this difficulty. Now let's take a look at how Paul handles the diversity that's in that group, in the leadership. So in, in verse 6, it says this. Now when, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. So Paul, knowing that the room is divided, that there are Sadducees and that there are Pharisees, he says, I'm a Pharisee too. And, and it's my beliefs that are Pharisee-like beliefs. That, that's the reason that I'm on trial. Now, notice what he's trying to do. He's trying to find refuge um, in, and... and um, an allegiance with one of the parties there that's represented in that room. Verse 7 adds clarity. Um, excuse me. Yeah, verse 7 adds clarity. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For, verse 8, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back to the barracks. Now, Paul perceives the division, the political factions that are there in the Sanhedrin. You have, you have this council of 71 people, the high priest being the 71st member, the, the deciding vote. And you have uh, some that are Pharisees and some that are Sadducees. And uh, you could divide them up sort of blue corner, red corner, right? In the blue corner, you have these politically liberal or progressive people. They're theologically liberal. There's in, in their minds, there's nothing supernatural. There's no angels. There's no spirits. There's no miracles. There's no resurrection. They believed in only the books of Moses, but not the prophets. And so they, they parsed the scriptures, didn't accept the writings of the prophets, all as being authoritative. And in the red corner, the more conservative, uh, they were politically conservative, theologically conservative, and, and very fundamentalist. They embraced the law and the prophets as a whole. They embraced the supernatural. They embraced miracles. They embraced a belief in angels and spiritual realities. They embraced a belief in the resurrection. And so Paul's hope here is to gain an ally in order to be heard. But instead of gaining an ally, what happened is that it backfired and such a sharp disagreement arose that he lost his opportunity to speak anymore at all. One party, the Pharisees, co-opted Paul's beliefs for their own political justification. Rather than having a platform to speak the gospel, what ended up happening 
was that Paul's message was drowned out for a convenient political debate. Rather than a discussion on whether Jesus rose from the dead, his words were used to justify a political position for the party that he aligned himself with. You see, this is the danger of confusing our citizenship. When we align parties, and instead of aligning ourselves with Christ first, it's not that we can't be citizens in a country and, and those kinds of things, but we have to keep our priorities centered upon the scriptures. This last January, I was in, uh, I was in Uganda, and I was traveling around with the pastors. And in the van, I, I began to ask questions about their country, and I, I began to ask questions about how things worked, how decisions were made, and who was in control. And, and uh, in the middle of that, one of the guys who was our driver in that van, uh, he, he said something that I thought was really, really profound. He said, you know, here's the problem, is that all of the churches want to align themselves right now with the political ruler of our country. The problem is, is that when that political ruler is replaced, then those churches will become the enemy of the next party that comes in, the next ruling faction that comes in. Because they're so closely aligned with one another, then as rule flip-flops back and forth, then the efficacy of the voice of the church is, is resigned only to the realm of its political allegiance. When the church aligns itself with a political party, the, the next administration becomes hostile not, hostile, not just to the political preferences, but also to the church and its message as well. And this is the difficulty. Paul sees this. Paul knows this, right? He, he sees that what, what is happening here is, is that instead of this opening up a conversation about Jesus and the resurrection and an opportunity to see his own countrymen get saved and, and come to know Jesus, what, in, what instead happened is because he's aligned now with one political party, what ends up happening is his voice is drowned out, the gospel is drowned out, and he is, is brought into a political debate rather than being made the voice of, of the message of the gospel primarily. So when he says this, this dissension arises. Now you've got to think about this too from the Roman perspective. From the Roman perspective, from, from Claudius Lysias' advantage, or from his vantage point, he looks at this, he's like, man, these religious people are crazy. L- look at them. Yesterday, they tried to kill him over the word Gentiles. Today, they try and kill him over the word resurrection. (laughs) Like, what is the deal with these guys? All they're interested in is political debate. They're so divisive. What is is the issue? And, 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 And can I just pause here for a moment? Brothers, sisters, in these politically divisive times, the way that we conduct ourselves represents Jesus. It represents Jesus. And oh, how wise we have to be in representing him and his kingdom. Listen, it's not that you can't have political viewpoints. You absolutely are entitled to those. It's that the way that we conduct ourselves in those political viewpoints matters because we represent the king of our kingdom. And people are watching 
People like Claudius Lysias are watching. They're like, what is this church thing all about? I don't get it. It seems like they're hung up on a lot of things. It seems like they're very politically aligned. It seems like, well, I don't, I don't really like the way that this political stance is. And, and since these guys are a part of that, well, then I don't like these guys. I don't like the church. The world is making judgments based upon our allegiances. And somehow, friends, somehow, brothers, we have to find this middle road, right? Of being citizens of heaven first and foremost. Speaking out on issues, yes, 100%. Having a a moral compass and talking about moral issues, you bet, 100%. But we have to be very careful to not let ourselves be brought into only being mere servants of the kingdoms of this world to the point where we can no longer be servants of the king of kings. We have to be oh so careful to thread that needle, to be very clear about where our allegiances start and stop, where they end. Well, we see there Paul's heart for his country, Paul's honor for authority. He surrenders himself to the word of God and surrenders himself even to the rule of the Sanhedrin. We see his handling of diversity. He tries to align himself and then instead of that gaining him a voice, that actually shuts down his voice and he doesn't get to defend himself. And Claudius Lysias, this unbelieving Roman Uh, Tribune has to come in and rescue Paul once again and spare his life, bring him back to the prison, back to the barracks. And Paul goes back. And verse 11 tells us this. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem so you must testify also in Rome. This is the fifth of six times where Jesus shows up in the book of Acts to minister to Paul's need. This is the fifth of six revelations in which Jesus comes and personally encourages Paul. And it always happens at key moments. It always happens at decisive times. Paul here is no doubt discouraged. After being shut down now for the third time, he, he, he's wrestling through, oh man, I didn't really get to the gospel. And, you know, he's likely wrestling with whether or not he's even effective. And, and, and knowing, though, his passion, the fact that he says, man, I would even go to hell for my own country. I just want them to know Jesus. I want them to be saved. Knowing that that is what's in his heart, he is wrestling through an issue here of some sort. Likely the fact that now he's been rejected for the third time. And as Paul is wrestling... Jesus comes to Paul and says, Paul, I hear this. This is really important. He says, Paul, take courage. Take it. Listen, the plan of the enemy is to discourage us. Now, you think we, we know what courage is, right? It's like, it's like the uh, ability to press beyond fear, right? 
It's the ability to, in the presence of fear, move beyond that and still do things even though you're afraid of what the cost might be or the outcome might be. That's what courage is. And, And so the enemy wants to discourage. He wants to empty us to pour out, to spill out courage from our hearts to where we no longer are able to do right things in the face of adversity. The enemy wants to discourage us, but, but God wants to encourage us, to fill us with courage that even in the presence of fear, we would continue to take steps forward. Now, now, now get this. Paul is told by Jesus to take courage, to take it, to appropriate courage for himself. Where Paul's heart settles, where it rests on the words of Jesus, determines how he responds to the literal trials that he is facing. He has the opportunity to take courage or to be emptied of courage, to be discouraged. And Jesus is saying to Paul, take courage courage this is this is for you to appropriate paul this is for you to grab a hold of and what did jesus give him to grab a hold of there's three things i think that are here that enabled paul to take courage first of all was the presence of jesus (laughs) jesus was with paul in a moment of struggle in in a time of discouragement in a season where he's wrestling with whether or not he's effective in ministry or whether or not what he does matters at all and and why he can't reach his own countrymen whatever the internal battles are that are going in Paul's heart Jesus comes to meet with Paul Jesus is with Paul he's with him man this is so powerful in 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 seasons of discouragement jesus is with us second thing that he could take courage from not only was jesus with him but he says to paul the the lord stood by him and said take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in jerusalem so you must also testify in rome so jesus is with paul second thing jesus is for paul paul you did it you were a faithful witness. You did exactly what I told you to do. I I told you that you were going to be my witness in Jerusalem. I said that that would happen. And Paul, you did it. You were my witness. You're in bonds right now. And though you worry about the details and your efficacy and, and, and how well you did, and you're worried about the income or the outcome, but Paul, you did what I asked you to do. You came here to testify of me. And Paul, I'm for you. I'm proud of you. And, and, and you testified here, you'll also testify in Rome. Third thing, Jesus is with us, and Jesus is for us. And Paul is saying to, or excuse me, Jesus is saying to Paul here, lastly, Jesus is not finished with him, and Jesus is not finished with us. He says, you will testify in Rome. And Paul writes in his letter to the Romans how, how he has an unceasing desire 
to come and meet with the Roman church. And, and right now, what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Acts, what we'll see is that Paul got a, a, a ticket to ride. Now, it wasn't a comfortable ticket. <laughs> it would be in the belly of a ship. There's a shipwreck involved. There's trials and everything else. But he will end up testifying to the name of Jesus and to his saving power and to his kingdom and his authority in all of the top most elite places in the known world at that time. God's not done with Paul. He's not finished with him. You see, Jesus stood for Paul at the cross. He stood in Paul's place. He he bore Paul's shame. He took his sin and he died on the cross with it and raised again from the dead. And then Jesus stood in front of Paul on the way to Damascus. And it said, Paul, you're opposing me. Why are you opposing me? It's it's me, Jesus, that you're persecuting. And Jesus stood by Paul in his trials. We see this come up again and again. Paul will reference it again at the very end of his life when he writes to 2 Timothy. He says, nobody else stood by me, but the Lord stood with me. Jesus stood by Paul in his trials. And there was coming a day from Paul's perspective where Jesus would once again stand to welcome Paul at the end of his race. He says, I know that there is laid up for me a crown that is waiting for me. He says, I'm running to win. I'm, I'm pressing towards that mark, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm, I don't know what, what's better for me sometimes. Is it better to be here for the sake of the saints and the sake of believers or, or better to be with Jesus because that's where my hope lies. One day I'm going to see him face to face. I'm going to stand in his presence. That's where my ultimate hope lies because I guess it's beneficial for me to be here now, but but really my hope is set on that moment where Jesus will once again stand to welcome me into his kingdom. Jesus stood for Paul at the cross. He stood in front of Paul on the way to Damascus. He stood by Paul in his trials and he will stand once again to welcome Paul at the end of his race. And Paul's hope is found there. Now, what I want you to see as we kind of wrap this up is, is, is an important piece. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's what we do in the presence of it. And if you are at a place where you find yourself discouraged today, maybe you're discouraged at the current political climate, or maybe you're discouraged at the slowness of our recovery or maybe you're discouraged at the the loneliness that you're experiencing in the present trials or maybe maybe you're discouraged at the debate among brothers and sisters in Christ over how best to move forward or or maybe you're discouraged at the coming future changes to to our society or or maybe even just in our church the changes that are happening all of the time and you find yourself weary and you find yourself discouraged you have an opportunity you are invited into the same thing that Paul was invited in. To take, to appropriate courage in the face of difficulty. To, by faith, grab a hold of the promises of God and allow your heart to settle upon, to rest upon those promises. What promises, you say? 
Jesus is with us. Jesus is for us. And Jesus is not finished with us. Jesus stood with Paul. And guys, right now, Jesus stands with us, reminding us that even hell itself will not prevail against his church or against his kingdom. God has a plan. His plan will come to pass. And we're part of that. He's with us in the middle of that. Jesus is with us. Jesus is for us. Jesus has used us all along to be a witness. And even right now, guys, even in the gap where, where we're not together physically, where worship is, is an, an experience that we view online and we participate from the privacy of our homes, by the Spirit, Jesus is with us and he is for us. He's using us even in this. Right now, we are bearing witness to his kingdom by the way that we joyfully join in worship together by the way that we joyfully serve our community together, by the way that we joyfully grab one another virtually and say, we're still the church. The church has not been moved. The church has not changed. The church has never been closed. We get to take courage in that because we are being witnesses in the midst of the trials. Jesus is with us. Jesus is for us. And lastly, Jesus is not finished with us yet. Guys, there's more. There's more that God wants to do in us. There's more that God wants to do through us. God is not done using his church in the world. There is lots and lots of work to do in this season. Maybe more than at any time because the pain out there is real. In 108 days, we lost 100,000 souls here in our own country. A hundred thousand people perished in 108 days. That's, that's more than the Vietnam War. In 108 days, that many people died in our country. And when you factor in eternity and what percentage of those people likely do not know the king and are likely not a part of the kingdom, the heart of God is broken over the suffering that is happening in our world. Guys, there is work for the church to do. There is work for us to be engaged in. What we're doing and how we represent Jesus and his kingdom matters now than, more than, than many seasons in the past. We have a voice. Let's be careful how we use it. I want to leave you with this. The same encouragement that Paul received is the same encouragement that we can receive the one the one who stood for us at the cross will one day stand to welcome us into his eternal kingdom that is unfading our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world which we're always they're always turning over in power and influence our hope is fixed it's set it's an anchor for the soul our hope rests upon Jesus, our king, who is a king above all kings, and his kingdom, which will outlast every kingdom. We've set our hope on that. So take courage, my friends. Take courage. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we can receive today. 
Thank you for the opportunity that we have to appropriate these truths, to let them rest and settle into our hearts, to let them come in and nourish our souls. Our hope is found in you. And in your kingdom that is unfading, in our great high priest who will never be replaced, in our king who sits on an eternal throne that will never be occupied by another, our hope is in you and in your kingdom. May that hope strengthen us today that we might take courage no matter what comes. We love you. Our eyes are on you. May we be faithful in this present moment. Use us for your glory. In the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. You've come to bring peace, to be love, to be nearer to us. Oh, you've come to bring life, to be light, to shine brighter in us. Oh, Amen. Thank you.
lift my hands to worship you, my King. I will find my strength in the shadow of your wings. In the shadow of your wings. Yeah, we do trust you. We put our hope completely in you. Thank you for this encouraging uh, passage this morning we got to walk through. God, thank you for being with each and every one of us. God, your presence is such a comfort in this time and a strength for us. We just love you so much. We pray this in your name.